It's Thursday, April 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The White House has proposed the third massive spending plan of its administration. The latest plan is called the American Families Plan and will cost $1.8 trillion. The plan will expand access to education with free universal preschool and two years of tuition-free community college, among other initiatives, and would be paid for by raising taxes on investors and wealthy Americans. The package cannot be passed without Congress and will be a tough sell for many as is. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what's in the plan. Next, there's an ongoing erosion of personal ownership. With the rise of digital purchases, subscription, and streaming-based services, do we even really own music or movies anymore? Beyond that, other products that we may buy that have, for example, proprietary software that may need to be surfaced by a specific parent company may also hinder what we do with our property. This new dynamic may also be changing the relationship and attachments we have to what we own. Dan Green, contributor to Vox, joins us for how some rights of traditional ownership are changing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I knew the president would be left of center. And I understand that elections have consequences, but I never thought he'd be left of Lenin. Joining us now is Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. The Biden administration has unveiled a $1.8 trillion spending and tax plan. This is the, the third spending plan so far of his administration. We had the recovery plan, the American recovery plan. This is going to be the American families plan. A lot of this uh, plan has uh, a lot to do with education. So, uh, Jeff, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in this plan. So, um, as you said correctly, this is the third policy, you know, major economic proposal from the White House since Biden took office. The first $1.9 trillion economic relief package was passed in March. And since then, the White House has unveiled two separate but related efforts that they say collectively add up to his Build Back Better agenda. Those $4 trillion stretched over two plans, the first of which is centered on infrastructure, manufacturing and jobs. And the second released yesterday, or I guess rather today, is centered on child care, education, paid family and medical leave, and other programs that the White House says are more directly geared toward improving the economic fortunes of middle-class families. The distinction between the two plans kind of blurs a little bit, and it's a little unclear how they'll pass or if they'll pass, but those are the two main buckets we're looking at. My understanding is that they might not be able to really get to this plan for some months, though, to be able to start hashing it out. It's definitely one of those things where um, everyone in Washington is asking everyone else what they think will happen with these two plans. And I think the answer is that really nobody, including the White House, including Pelosi, including Schumer, is not a question that there's no answer to, unfortunately. There's a ton of stuff in both of these plans that a lot of people have been clamoring for that really have widespread consensus, at least on the Democratic side, and then poll quite well provisions such as, you know, as I mentioned, paid family and medical leave. America is one of the uh, countries in the world with the highest levels of child poverty. The White House temporarily approved an expansion of the child tax credit in March. That's going to expire. Um, and so child poverty would spike if that's not extended. So there are all these things that a lot of people, um, you know, at least among the Democrats, are very adamant need, need to get done. But the sequencing and the timing is really unclear, especially because the tax provisions, both in the manufacturing plan and in this family's plan, are very contentious. The taxes on the manufacturing plan would be, you know, primarily centered on corporations and businesses. The 
taxes in the family's plan are centered on investors and rich Americans. But really, those are both very controversial. It's very easy to spend relative to, you know, taking money away from some constituency, especially one um, as influential as rich people when it comes to Congress. Let's talk a little bit about some of the details of the plan. I mentioned education is a huge part of that. They want to do a free pre-K for ages three and four. They also want to give people two years free of community college. So right now, the nation's guarantee of a free education is at 13 years. They want to bump that up to 17 years of free education. How, how, how is that going to work? The White House identifies certain levels of funding that they want to include to achieve those goals. I think it's about $250 billion or so for universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds in the country and about $100, $150 billion over 10 years for free community college, two years of free community college. But the mechanisms for that are very unclear, and it actually became apparent in the release of the plan last night to reporters and then to the public this morning that they're really counting on a lot of state aid and state money being used to reach that goal. So the White House is saying that the money that they're providing will amount to that goal. But we've already seen these kinds of approaches from Democrats not really work out in the past. You may recall, some listeners may recall that under Obama, there was a lot of hope that the Medicaid expansions that they approved as part of the Affordable Care Act would induce states to um, you know, expand Medicaid and cover the poorest uh, um, people um, in those states with health insurance, but that the states would kick in some amount. That didn't happen, and a lot of people, a lot of poor people in states controlled by Republicans never saw that expansion. And so there's a lot of concern among some of the advocates for these policies that while the White House is trumpeting these measures as fulfilling these broadly held social goals, that they're not actually willing to do the requisite spending to achieve them. You know, it's already getting kind of panned on both sides, really, on the Democratic side, on some areas for not going too far, obviously on the Republican side for raising taxes too much, and and the increase in the role that government would play in American society. One of those things that I guess uh, being criticized for maybe not going too far, those child tax credits that were kind of implemented so far, I think they want to try to extend it to 2025 with this new plan. But, you know, they're trying to keep the cost down of the overall bill. So they said, oh, let's keep it to 2025, not extend it indefinitely. You know, so there's like a lot of uh, wiggle room and, and uh, jockeying with all of this. It's such a strange dynamic you put your finger on because, while, well, as you correctly say, the White House plan only extends the tax credit through 25. The White House and Biden themselves keep saying that they want to make it permanent and it's basically an admission that they're trying to play games with the number, that they envision this policy being permanently enacted, but they do not want to be tied to the implication that because this program will be expensive in the back half of the decade, it it gets actually much more expensive to extend after 2025, because that is the year at which the Republican increase in the child tax credit from 2017, from their 2017 tax law, that will end. So, to extend it beyond 25 would require them not only to pay for the extension from the stimulus plan passed in March, but also the expansion from the uh, 2017 Republican Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So they're trying to avoid being saddled with a sticker shock, but at the same time, acknowledging that their intention is to spend the same amount of money. It's, it's an awkward dance they're trying to pull off. So we have the infrastructure plan. We have the American Families Plan now. They're both going to be really tough to get through what would a, a win look like for the Biden administration with these two bills? Because as, as I mentioned, you know, they put a lot in it. They know they're going to have to negotiate a lot of things and it won't be the same at the end. But what would a win look like for them? From the people I talked to in, in the White House, 
there's some debate about whether they're acting on this appropriately, but I, I think there's a broad recognition that under the Obama years, Democrats didn't really do enough to prove to everyday Americans that the federal government was capable of delivering concrete material benefits that would improve their economic well-being and, and standing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different provisions, but the White House is hoping that these two packages combined, that enough of them get through that the economy is is changed. I know it sounds maybe amorphous, but it's changed in a way that, that people notice in their daily lives. They have these plans to, you know, build electric vehicle charging stations throughout the country to weatherize millions and millions of homes to dramatically uh, reduce the amount that families face in their child care bills. Um, what they pay to have um, their parents and grandparents watched through the elder care system that's so broken in this country. And I don't know what the precise metrics for success for them looks like, but I think they're really aiming to have an impact so that people really notice sort of the economy get better and not, you know, they, they're, they're very careful about this and sort of understated, but the way they frame it is build back better. That's been Biden's slogan. And it's, it's a, a call to say, you know, let's not just go back to where we were before COVID make sort of these structural adjustments to the American economy that go beyond, you know, immediate uh, emergency relief. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The extent to which we own those things is limited by the extent to which they can do a lot of these fancy and cool things. There's all these limits that come from essentially licensing access to software that's now just inescapable in our lives. Joining us now is Dan Green, contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you for having me on. You wrote an interesting piece for Vox that I wanted to talk about, the erosion of personal ownership. And uh, the tagline, everything from your fridge to your tractor can change without your permission. So that caught my eye. I wanted to talk about it. And you do mention a lot of the stuff that really I feel attached to streaming services, movies, music, you know, and kind of how in a lot of ways you don't own that stuff anymore. Unless you have a really killer record collection or a CD collection, I guess, if you want to throw it out that way. You don't have ownership of those things that much anymore. You subscribe to a service and you can get all the songs you want. Same thing with movies and, and TV stuff, but you don't necessarily own those things. And, and you go into a bunch of other things as well. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about this, the erosion of personal ownership. You know, it was DVDs that were kind of my entry point to thinking about this. I was preparing to move apartments, and my girlfriend wanted me to get rid of my DVD collection to save space. And, you know, I kind of balked at the idea that I wouldn't be able to watch some of these movies or TV shows anytime I wanted to, right? That's the whole allure of these subscriptions to things like Netflix and Hulu and whatever, all these streaming services that you can watch them anytime and on demand, but you can't really because you don't know that you're going to have access to those things forever, that, you know, the libraries can change, the selection available to you can change, and you have to keep paying forever to continue to have that access. So it's this very different model of consumption. And that just got me thinking about all, all sorts of other things that are kind of tied to this digitization of our possessions, for lack of a better term, whether it's MP3s even that you download and own or digital movies that you download and own through Amazon or whatever it may be, those can be revoked. You're really licensing access to that 
specific file and you can't do whatever you want with it. You can't lend it out to a friend the same way you could with a physical copy of, the, of that same piece of media. The reasons that you can't do that stem from these legal decisions and, and licensing issues that now, because so much of our life and so many of the objects in our life, like refrigerators, like tractors, cars, phones, obviously become embedded with software. And that software is you know, susceptible to or governed by the same licensing regulations and the same limitations on what you can do with those things. So all these things that we think that we have, whether it's music and, and movies and things you stream or the phone in your hand that you do everything on or the refrigerator that has some cool software in it that lets you do some cool, fancy stuff. It's the extent to which we own those things is limited by the extent to which they can do a lot of these fancy and cool things. There's all these limits that come from essentially licensing access to software that's now just inescapable in our lives. So now that we kind of realize how little control over some of the things we think we own we have, Tell me about the personal attachments that we form with the things that mm -hmm. we own. You mentioned in the article, it could be a book that has the, you know, you write in the margins, you know, that's something very personal, your own personal notes that you put in, but it's a physical copy of the book. Going back to music, if you own that record collection, it's curated music, things that you own, we form attachments to that, identities to that. Tell me a little bit about that. There's this idea that I talk about in the piece called The Extended Self, and it comes from this professor, Russell Belk, he coined it in the 80s, and how possessions kind of come to be part of our identity of, of who we are. And one of the ways that they do that is through our use of them and, and the control that we exercise over them, but also over time, we imprint ourselves on them. As you mentioned, notes in the margins of books, you know, those are ways that we make it, make it so that that copy of that book it's not just a copy of that book that could be interchanged with anyone. That, that's our copy, and we know that it's ours. And, you know, that comes from the dents and dings on certain possessions or, you know, just a, a you know, little spill on something that reminds you of, oh, yeah, when I spilled some coffee on the corner of that book or whatever it may be. There are all these ways that we then kind of mark ourselves onto our possessions. And, you know, there have been experiments that have been done, studies that have been done that show the way that people hold these objects to be more valuable than their replacements, what's known as the endowment effect, where if you have a copy of a book that you've had for five, 10 years, and especially if it's a book you really love and, and means something to you, or it could be a chair, it could be all sorts of things. Someone offers you what's essentially an identical copy of that. Oh, here's a different copy of that book, or here's a different chair, or here's a different table, or whatever it may be. Often people won't make that swap. You know, it's one thing maybe if it's if it's damaged beyond repair, the version that you have and, and the other one's kind of better in that way. But often we want our version of that thing. So we establish a relationship with these objects that way and they, they develop what's known in some circles as a, a cultural biography. These items in our lives come to have their own personal histories attached to them and that adds a value to them that can't be replaced by just essentially an identical copy of that same object. And that's something that's very true in the physical world. In the digital world, you don't necessarily have that relationship. You know, you're reading eBooks. There's nothing like that where, it, oh, it's a different copy of the eBook that, uh, that's not personally yours. You know, I don't, I don't really know how that would necessarily even be determined. You know, right. there's one of the professors I talked to in the story talked about how she found in, in her studies on, related to this that people will have a copy of a book, especially younger people. And she gave the example of Harry Potter fans. 
that they will have a copy of the book, a physical copy of the book, and they'll also have a digital version of the book, an ebook, because that's what they read. They read it on their Kindle or whatever device, and because that's just the way that they consume things. But they want to have the physical copy as well, because that's the one that they have. That's the one that gets to sit on the shelf as part of their lives, and it comes with them when they move to a new home. It's just part of their actual physical world. So there's another relationship that they have there beyond just consuming this text. So what's the next step to this conversation? Because also, in some of the experts you spoke to, they talk about these four rights of traditional ownership that are lost in this shift that we get on license-based, subscription-based systems, the right to ban, right to run, right to hack, and right to sell. And, you know, these are all things, you know, uh, as simple as, uh, as you mentioned, those kind of John Deere tractors and all that stuff, modify things that would ruin the license for them. But, you know, we own that tractor, so we should be able to do what we want. The right to sell, uh, passing on of digital goods. I know in the video game industry, that's tough. You buy a digital form of a video game, you basically own it for life. You can't really sell that to another person. It's very difficult. So we lose these types of things when we go to that. So what's kind of the next step? How do we regain it? Or will we ever regain it now that everything's kind of moved past that? To completely regain it might be difficult just because so many of these things are going to continue to be intangible. And they're not going to be physical things that you can just go around and hand to somebody else or pass on to other people who take the possessions out of your house after you pass away or whatever it may be, or if you lend to a friend or give to a friend or sell at a, a yard sale. So that's going to be hard in a lot of ways to completely regain. But one of the entry points to getting some of these rights back centers on the right to hack or the right to repair. And the right to repair is growing as a movement that incorporates a lot of different people from different sectors of life, whether that is the owners of tractors, the farmers who have these John Deere tractors with software in them that then they can't repair the way they want to because John Deere owns the intellectual property of the software, so they get to control anything connected to that software gets repaired. And so you have people fighting battles on that front with physical items like that, that they want to repair according to their own wishes and their own financial interests, you know, just as a consumer that you want to find the best deal to get it fixed. And then you have people who want to run certain software on their phones and other devices that they feel like these are my devices. I should run the software I want to own or I want to run on them. So a lot of this gets kind of lumped together under the right to repair or also the right to hack, the right to kind of do what you want with these goods. And that's gaining steam uh, sometimes on the state level, also on the international level in Europe, as something that states and governments are carving out as a protection that they are willing to kind of legally grant to consumers beyond the normal kind of legally established precedents in these cases. So there are bills that are aimed at trying to establish a right to repair that once you have a device, you can repair it in the way that you want. You can run it the way that you want. I think that of the four rights, that's going to be the one, or it has so far been the one where there's been the most ground gained and that that might open up a lot of doors for us to be able to treat these kind of digital and software-based properties the same way we often treat physical ones where they are ours to do what we want with once we own them. Dan Green, contributor to Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.